Hi, I'm Rob. And I'm Dave. We've got the same dad. But we didn't meet until I was 29 and Rob was 16. Which was a real shame. <laughs> Which was a real shame. Because <laughs> we missed out on so much music. But we're rectifying that now with this podcast where we share an album that... Your brother, your brother should, should no, no, Okay, well, let's dive straight in. Today, we're going to talk about an album which uh, I'm really quite excited to be delving into. This there's been a lot of hoo ha around its 10th anniversary. Random Access Memories by Daft Punk, who are, of course, the embarrassingly fated, ridiculously influential French electronic music duo. With ridiculously unpronounceable, very French names. Thomas Guimard, something like that. They were the definition of seminal. Uh, they released three records and a run between 1997 and 2005. Homework, Discovery and Human After All. The first two especially were considered classics. Uh, birthing singles such as Around the World, One More Time and Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger. Uh, their whole bag is that they were basically sample kings. They were staggeringly adept at their ability to dig up obscure records, often disco funk ones, but from all over, uh, chop up little bits, speed them up, slow them down, and make fantastic music. They're obviously not the first people to sample, but they took it to a new level. They've been described as retro-futurist musical magpies. So essentially that what that means is they were coming from a school of kind of French house, but dropping in lots of funk Lots of groove, but also elements of indie and synths and electronic to make really quite audio pleasing music. It was music that was no longer just made for the dance floor. I think inspired by a little bit by people like Aphex Twin. This was electronic music, which was not necessarily for the clubs or for the come downs. And as a result, it found its way onto the radio and they arguably became some of the first electronic music stars of the modern age. So how did they follow all that up? Uh, they decided on their Fourth release, which was about five years in the making and eight years after their previous album, to basically do away with all the samples and give us Random Access Memories, a record where they stripped it all back and decided to hire loads of studio musicians and recreate music that's live. It's it's very clearly a response to the electronic juggernaut that they had birthed. It was ridiculously successful and took away five Grammys, including Record of the Year. It's a record that I engaged with at the time but i wasn't really sure how i was going to feel looking back on it um so i picked this really as an experiment as a bit of a selfish reason to see an excuse for me to dig back and i'm really excited to hear what you thought of it okay so what what an album to pick for me someone that you know as you know is immersed deeply in uh, 70s 80s and 90s music but then falls off a cliff quite quickly uh, as we get to the millennium so really pleased to um, to dig deeply into such a seminal release what did i think um i thought there are moments of absolute brilliance on this album there there are Yay! there is there is half an album here which i absolutely love but there's half an album which leaves me very, very, very cold. And the easy, the easy thing to say, um, because, you know, these guys, these guys are, you know, they may be lovers, but they ain't no dancers, right? Okay. They are producers. Oh my golly. Can they produce a nice sound? This sounds lovely. It sounds lovely in the radio. Sounds lovely on my headphones. It sounds lovely in my, on my hi-fi. There's nowhere this doesn't, the, you know, the production on this album is amazing. If you just, oh God, it just sounds crisp and clean and lovely, but not just crisp. It's like uh, the, the retro thing's really interesting. It sounds crisp and clean, but also if you've had an, an old seventies amplifier, it's like they're 
press the loudness button as well. So it's got a deepness to it and a, and a, a you know, the bass vibrates your heart at the same time as this very crisp and clean stuff going on over the top. So yeah, boy, these guys can produce, but can they write? Can they write songs? No, they can't write songs. That's the problem. That's probably a really obvious thing to say. I'm sure it's been said, but good golly. With the exception of the first track, which we'll come on to, and I love it. It's brilliant. And maybe with the exception of the number four, Within, which is a nice ballad, but you really want to hear it without that vocoder. All the other good stuff on the album is a collaboration. All of it. And all the other stuff on the album is really, 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 really dire, uninspired not very good instrumental stuff in in my humble opinion that's so interesting and i do definitely share your opinion that yeah by leaning so heavily into the collaborations it means that the rest of the material the songs that are just left with what i would call the the robo coders can feel a little bit undercooked uh but i'm interested by everything i'm and i find the decision making process that they must have gone through quite fascinating i think i probably get the same kicks listening to this record and Trying to make sense of it, that probably sports fans get when they, they see the they see the squad list for the new season or the transfer window or the okay. you know someone in the bookie shops gets when they're when they're when they're betting on a horse they've never they've ne- you know they've never heard of. They're not necessarily calling up the biggest people in the world, which they could. They're Daft Punk, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, Pharrell was a relatively big name, but then you've got you know obscure people like Todd Edwards and um, Paul Williams. But I think that's one of the reasons I like this record. This whole patchwork of, of relationships and really kind of jarring elements, I find it fascinating. Another reason I chose this album was because it's something I engaged with deeply at the time, but as I said, I haven't really revisited. I reviewed it uh, for Time Out magazine where I was working when it first came out 10 years ago. And I, at that point in my career, I, uh, and actually since, I had never seen a media campaign this sustained, this over the top. You know, they were buying, they were buying huge billboards on, um, you know, Sunset Boulevard and, you know, showering, showering journalists with stuff. I got sent like these cardboard robot hats. Um, you know, it, it was a really big deal. All these, all these spots that were being done online and on TV, I believe. I don't think there's been an event record of the same kind since. And it really felt like the last hurrah of the old school record industry. Now, of course, the internet had come and conquered by then. And of course, uh, illegal downloads was a thing, but Spotify was not completely predominant in 2013. So this is kind of, it's somewhat appropriate that this record is such a throwback to the golden era of the 70s and 80s that they were trying to recreate. And yet they kind of, they recreate it not just in the musical aesthetic, but in the whole hubbub around it. I, I get a lot of that. And, and what I'd say is, um, you're right. This is 2013. So was it the last time an album was packaged as an album? You know, because as soon as you get Spotify. No, no, no. but it was, it was, it was towards the end of that, of that world. It was an, ev- an, as event. an event. As I don't think there's been an event sure. album event album in the same way so this idea to go back to roots and recorded instruments and recreating every every note on an actual instrument with a vast expense um yeah this record really has the feel and actually all the zeal of a super fan who's been given an open checkbook from the dying days the dinosaurs of the of the of the big um record industry era and yeah, did they have the chops to back it up? I'm not sure. I mean, I like I say, I find it, I find the results consistently compelling though. And while there's definitely flaws, the the compelling part for me is in unpacking the thought process that's that's led to it. They've thought about the running order. I mean, they've certainly, you know, the opening track. Uh, what what a way to open it, both musically and 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 conceptually. You know, give life back to music. Yes, and it's such a blast of an opener um you've talked about this album kind of harking back to musical elements of the past this feels to me just like a, it's a fantastic homage to it to like 70s in a good way 70s tv theme tunes 
you know, it just it kind of blasts off, and you can and the little instrumental bits, you can almost see the lead characters coming coming in and and thwacking the villain or something, then freeze frame, and then onto the next one, and it, and then it builds up to that climax again. It's a it's a wonderfully uplifting, and it's the it's the strongest non collaboration on the album. You know, they've opened with their own work, not a collaboration, and it and it opens the piece really nicely. Well, you say that, but if you want to make that kind of music, who do you call if you're Daft Punk? I'm afraid it is a collaboration. It's one of three collaborations with Nar Rogers. Ah, okay. Right. Fair enough. Who also crops up on the two Pharrell songs. So this one, yeah, I mean, I'm glad you like this because I feel like the silly, like it's like this big kind of like Saturday night football kind of feel, you know, or what I imagine America's go for like a big sporting spectacle. Yeah. It's a cheesy TV theme tune riff, but it's done with such panache and it's a good TV theme tune riff. So fantastic. Go with it. Oh, completely. It really is them putting the human, you know, Daft Punk spent their whole life uh, creating this idea of the robotic of technology becoming, you know, the technological process and and reaching between that. And uh, this was them literally, yeah, playing physical instruments, putting the life back in the music. Yeah. Great mission statement. What else did you like? Okay, so one of the reasons it's clear that this album has been thought through for me is, yeah, it opens with that banging, fantastic. And then if there is thought behind this and they are aware of their own weaknesses, I I feel very strongly they've put the absolute weakest track next to kind of get it out of the way. The Game of Love, it is so dull. It is, if you've never heard it, well, if you've never heard it, really don't waste your time. If you have heard it and you love it, I am really sorry. But I found it so dull. And I want to say that just because you put a vocoder on a vocal melody, that does not make a boring melody interesting. It doesn't actually make the song better. Uh, it's just annoying. It just makes you go, oh, it was dull anyway. And now you put a really sort of annoying vocoder on it. it I, I, it's instant now thumb on on spotify forward for, for me it doesn't pass the i think there's a, a pass the test thing for me where if it, two people vaguely musically competent maybe you or i rob or anybody actually uh could they go in with the equipment that these guys have got and given that given eight hours a bit like infinite monkeys with typewriters give them eight hours could they produce something more interesting than this i think 99 percent of people could i found it an absolute waste of space of the track that's so funny. Uh, there's definitely moments in this record where I think that that kind of criticism is justified. I quite like this. I think this has got, it's really quite evocative to me. I find the image of, you know, the one walking away quite powerful. Mm-hmm. And I think coming straight after Give Life Back to Music, it's instantly like flipped it on its head. I feel we've gone from the party to the morning after. And this is just like, this is the kind of clambering around in the broken glass and the spilt mm-hmm. peanuts and the, and the beer stained carpet and just trying to get your head together. And I, I kind of like that that moment of loss, and I think it's a nice emotional contrast. What I find more baffling, if I'm completely honest, is the decision to follow that with Giorgio by Marola. A song, I will say, that I really enjoy and I'm really glad exists in the world. I think it's a, a fascinating piece, uh, uh, experiment. It's obviously very indulgent, and we can talk about why, but to me... I'm so glad it exists, but why did you put that third? And then why did you follow that within? Which to me, within is the piece of dead wasted wax. That's Ah, the one where I'm using. Okay. All right. So for me, this is, that's just the wonderful thing about music, isn't it? Uh, the Georgia Moroder one. Oh, really? If I, you know, if I'm interested in Georgia Moroder's biography, which I am, I'll read it or go and look for an interview on YouTube with him. Do I need an interview with him put to 
Again, because it, it, it's not a collaboration, this one. It's very clear. He's had nothing to do with the music at all. He just recorded some stuff for them, and then they went off and did the music. And it's not very engaging music. Um, uh, honestly, it's the first, it's the first of a few tracks, the, the, the instrumentals, where you're just, you know, you've got a tiny musical idea and you've blown it up with your nice production. But, and, and, and it's not like I'm someone that doesn't like instrumentals. You know, I spent, all of my teenage life listening to prog rock. I can do four sides of instrumental music, interesting instrumental music by achingly uncool people. But believe me, you know, if you're in any way connected to the instrumentals on this album and you like them in any way, believe me, there's a whole world out there of, of interest, way more engaging instrumental music than, than this. Start with Can Future Days, that, that kind of, that would be a great leaping point because that's kind of not electronic actually, is it? Cause it's, but, 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 mm. but it has a kind of similar jump off. Uh, point and then go into a world of fantastic you know prog rock i could you know achingly uncool bands like yes and king crimson all of whom will produce more interesting melodies and timings and soundscapes than than the instrumentals on this album which tend to just resort to finding a little bit of a widdly widdly melody we kind of like and repeat it over and over again and that what happens on Giorgio by Moroda the first half of it I'm like well I've heard your story now Giorgio it's interesting I could have read that and the second half of it I find just to be a very very dull repeated instrumental phrase well I have a lot to defend that track with but I will first say that technically there are only two instrumentals on this album you could classify this as a third and I'd see why yes i think it's quite absurd if you are trying to make a throwback disco funk album in 2013 and you get Giorgio moroda to come and collaborate with him you don't ask him for any musical ideas you just put him in front of not just a microphone but three microphones famously he one from the 60s one from the 70s uh, and one from the present day at which he moves through during his monologue and just get him to tell him the story of his life and then concoct this this web of sound behind it but i will say at first it seemed like a cheap gimmick and you're saying you you could have read the story somewhere else well remember how famous star punk are i remember the kind of ambassador role they played and i remember how that they have you know led this electronic music revelation and revolution and what they've done here you know it did kickstart this this throwback to a funk sound which definitely took you know a, a, a Disco became cool again for a few hot minutes in the mid in the mid tens, and I I and a lot of that was down to this record. So yeah, I I David, you can overlook um, the importance that actually having a character like that kind of setting the context, like, even showing people what a click track is, which to us may may seem obvious, but I think that's pretty great. But even with or without that potted history of electronic music, uh, which yeah doesn't reward repeated re- listens, that really only takes up about ninety seconds of the tune, I think. Uh, the resting music is quite majestic. Yeah, you've got that intense modular synth freakout going on, but then midway it suddenly breaks into this like jazz fusion freakout with like this crazy kind of Ramsey Lewis s keyboard solo, and and then and then at the end when you've got the great o- Omar Hakim coming in with those incredible drum fills, and then it, and, and and it kind of just exploding into that ending with this human heartbeat. I I find it really really exciting. Uh, musically. And yeah, maybe I would have prepared it for repeated listening if it had not had the dialogue, I uh, had the monologue and I had a lot less of it. But it's got to the point where I know it so well that I no longer find it irritating like I perhaps did 10 years ago. And then we come into Within, which as I say, I find that the moment where I, the tempo's dropping. What do you think of Within? I, I, I liked it. It's a nice ballad. I probably want to hear it without the vocoder, but I, I, I thought it was, I thought it was more interesting and, and, 
we've done this before, but if you if you were to sort of turn these albums into the ones you want to listen to and pluck out the ones you don't want to listen to, this one would just about stay in. What I would love to know, because uh, there's a repeated phrase of "Please tell me who I am." Um, that's a yeah, and and there's a that that's a, a very obvious phrase from <laughs> again another achingly uncool band, Supertramp, the logical song, massive massive hit for Supertramp, which its whole chorus is "Please tell me who I am." So I don't, I can't be the only person of my age that heard that and went, oh, "What is that? Is there something there?" Because it's you know, please well, please tell me who I am. Maybe that is just an obvious thing to think or sing, um, but it seemed it's it, the logical song is quite a famous song, so you, I, it would be weird if they had hadn't heard it and didn't know that there wasn't a, a connection there but uh, i was i was fine with within so as i said i had a massive issue with the sequencing of this record it's like you're going to have all these big name collabs and you're hiding them in the second end you know the first time you hear a real vocal singing yeah track five with judean casablanca factoring the length of the marola track you must be what 25 minutes deep into this mm-hmm. 74 minute album by that point uh, but there is an inner logic to it, which kind of reveals itself. And I, you, you, you talk about their songwriting ability or lack thereof. And I think this really, this really spells it out. So what repeated listings made me realize is that the first three tracks are all in A minor. And track four is technically a collaboration with the pianist Chile Gonzalez, who basically admitted he kind of came in and all he really had to offer them was finding a way for them to bridge between those three songs in A minor and the block of three more songs to come in B flat minor half tone up and what he does if you listen to the intro he's playing a descending like an A and then a kind of inverted A whatever and then maybe passing the G to hit the F and he does that twice and then holds on the F which seeks going up fourth higher to the B flat so really he, you know that was his grand contribution to the world which I kind of think if you need to hire someone as famous as Chili Gonzalez just to kind of show you how harmony works you do have you do have some point there in the limited songwriting ability, mm-hmm. but having said that, there, there is clearly an logic to the ordering, uh, which okay. only only okay. revealed itself to me later. Because well, the interesting question is: so the first three are in A minor, and then they go to uh, where do they go? B, B, B flat minor. B flat minor. Do, is that the next three, and then they go up again, or is? And then actually, yeah, the next two are in B minor. Okay, all right, all right. <laughs> just keep going up and up and up. I mean, I didn't, I didn't think we were going to do this in order, but let's go up and up about Elsa. So, so like I say, Instant Crush. Yeah, um, I loved Instant Crush. Finally, a proper, it's a proper song. I, okay, interesting. <laughs> first, first, yeah, first time you hear a human voice singing a melody. Although, uh, this is again, you know, he's using a vocoder, not as, not as much as possible. Apparently, when he came in the studio, they wanted him to do his whole strokes thing to kind of be angry and shouty and rock and roll and whatever. Really? He's like, no, I want to be you guys, man. Okay. Apparently. Um, and the the other thing that uh, he said in interviews is that the chorus and the verse were apparently presented him his two different musical ideas, and whether he wonders if it was like a leading question that he he was meant to go let's put them together or not. But because it, it does sound like it's got a very kind of classic light and dark kind of thing where you have got the muted mm-hmm. muted power chords, very kind of classic rock trudge, very much what feels like a driving at eight pm kind of song, and then you've got that kind of classically beautiful, very catchy chorus. It's probably the most straight ahead mm. song in the sense of like, as in a, a rock pop song with, and probably the only one where the guitar is playing like on the beat. So sure. pronounced in the verses. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a classic pop song. It's, I think it didn't perform as well as everyone was expecting. Cause uh, at that point, I guess Casablancas was still relatively relevant. And yeah, it, that would have been the stark collaboration as much as the Pharrell one. But it's I think. two very different audiences, is it? I mean, it's an interesting collaboration, isn't it? So if you're a if you're a Daft Punk tribe person, are you a Strokes fan? And if you're a Strokes fan, is Daft Punk at this point well, number one on your playlist? So it's a kind of 
fair point. I do think that Daft Punk are one of those bands that really did cross over to different musical communities. And I know guitar people that didn't listen to any level of electronic music uh, coming to Daft Punk. And that's why I think they have this kind of ambassadorial role. But yeah. Hmm. Before we go anywhere else, we've got to talk about, let's, let's address the, uh, the blaring, wide-hatted elephant in the room. Get lucky. I mean, I'm intrigued to know, like, how you first engaged. That's the one you obviously knew. How did you engage with that song when you first heard it? And, and how do you feel hearing it 10 years later? Ah, uh, it's a tune. That's what I put on my notes. It's a tune with lots of O's. Um, yeah, you know, Farrell Williams involved in great pop tune shock, you know, but between them, those people were bound to produce something brilliant. And, um, and yeah, it, it still gets airplay. Um, it's the big hit, isn't it? And, and, and for good reason. It's funny you say that. Yeah, this is Pharrell. Pharrell was obviously very, very uh, respected at that point in his career, but he wasn't the Pharrell we know now. He wasn't the LV men's creative director Pharrell. He wasn't this cultural behemoth. Um, I, th- I think it's really fascinating that Happy came out the January after this, so it would have been around eight months later, I think. So these two songs are what really propelled him to superstardom. Okay. I feel like Get Lucky really is the perfect pop song. It's it's clearly evidently, unlike most of the record, this is actually made for the clubs. And I lived through it in an era uh, in a very hedonistic city where I was going out a lot. And hearing it night after night and seeing people's reaction to it was incredible. And I mean, it's just this open secret. I don't care what Pharrell says. We know what the song's about. It's, it's you know, and that's the open joke. Every, everyone's there bobbing and grooving to various degrees of competence but they kind of look around when that song comes on and it kind of it's 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 blasting we we all know what we're doing there we all know what we're getting on with Mm -hmm. you know at the end of the day most people are hoping not to leave the club alone right that's that's the truth um but then it takes it a step further because in at least one of the choruses he he sings she's out for good fun i'm out to get lucky which again you know is quite precedent and it turns really turns it on the mm. on the male gaze mm. what's more interesting or more amusing about this is this song was obviously widely associated with blurred lines by robin fick which you know uh, as well as infamously being uh you know losing the artists i think pharrell's on that as well yes pharrell and robin fick and yes he did that and happy and yes he did those three songs that's why pharrell is famous yes <laughs> um but as well as being sued for six seven million dollars for ripping off marvin gay uh you know it, the subject matter was the blurred lines of when it's appropriate yeah consent and that was a little bit dark so it's kind of interesting that this is kind of a family friendly mix but it's still ultimately to me about getting your rocks off in a club and I'm okay. Uh, I'm okay with that because it's celebrating it in a, I, I believe, pretty consensual fashion. And um, and yeah, if nothing else, if all the epic indulgence and expense of this 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 album left us was that one perfect pop song. Sure. I'm okay with that sure. too. I'm okay with. And that. I can certainly say, yeah, no. From ten years on, I didn't feel it was. You know, even even ten years later, some things you think, golly, that's icky and inappropriate now. But for me, the lyrics speak for themselves. It's not about blokes trying to get lucky and taking advantage. It's not about women trying to get lucky and taking advantage. It's just about anybody, regardless of gender, trying to get lucky and get their rocks off in whatever way they want to. Fantastic. What's- or sexuality? Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So, so all good. Um, glad we can agree on that. Okay. So, I mean, let's talk about the other Pharrell Narridge's one. Lose yourself to dance. Now, I have a kind of theory that um, you could tell a lot about a person based on whether they prefer get lucky or this. <laughs> well, that's a leading question. 
Um, I love this one. I probably did prefer it to get lucky um, just because, uh, you know, it does what it says on the tin. You either, you either, because it, it repeats itself. It finds a groove and it repeats itself. Um, especially that bit where it comes, the, the come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. You know, yes. that, that's, just, you know, all of that. But it, but it, but it is what it is. It doesn't try and be anything else other than a really funky dance tune. And I loved it for that. And I loved it. And again, I'm going to talk just sad old man throwbacks. It reminded me, and some people will know what I mean, Elton John's Bite Your Lip, Get Up and Dance, which has the same okay. kind of structure. And it's from Blue Moves in 1976. But it's sort of the same structure in that you could argue it goes on too long because it start, starts with a bit of a, a kind of different, you know, yeah. verse chorus stuff. And then, then the out the outro of Bite, the Elton John song is about five minutes long. It just repeats itself, you know, bite your lip, get up, get up and dance. And you're just, you're either going to be in that mood dancing or you're not uh, and this does the same thing it's kind of it goes on you know too long for a song but not but but not mm. too long for a for, for a wig out dance right so that all works for me there must be a single edit but yeah i mean you yeah. know how disco tunes were notoriously there were there were you know the 12 inch mix and this this feels like the 12 inch mix <laughs> yeah. yeah i think there's a school of thought it's easier to imagine that this is the ugly cousin of get lucky sure but it was the second single and it still lit up the dance floor okay and yeah it's a bit slower it's more Ordering. Mm-hmm. I think it actually makes more of Nile Rogers. Like I think the guitar part yeah. is so fantastically him. Yeah, and, and again, it's very sexy. The "Just Take My Shirt" line. I mean, I mean, it's Pharrell at his best. He's, I, I think actually think it's a better vocal performance by Pharrell. So mm-hmm. I think both the guests actually sound better, and that the song gives them more space. And yeah, it's. It, I mean, why can't we have both? Why can't we have both yeah. of them in the world? So yeah, that's yeah, yeah. yeah. What's uh, what's interesting? So he's the only one that gets. To, well, Nile Rogers gets two clubs, but you know what happened there? Did they go in and, well, and Nile go, gets three actually? So he gets three, but Pharrell gets two. Did did they go in and go right? Let's do a track, and actually they ended up with two and went. That's fantastic bonus, or was it meant? So, I don't know. The story is because um, I like as I said earlier, I think it's fascinating the people that got chosen for this album. I think in most cases there was an existing relationship of some sort. Right. So apparently Pharrell got invited to the studio in Paris because uh, if we don't get to this later, let's point out this record was recorded, well, over five years technically, but two and a half years of actual sessions across five studios, including three in LA, including the famous Capitol Building, right. uh, one in Paris and uh, New York. Right. But but most of the vocals were recorded in France. So Pharrell mm. apparently sat down with him in the studio and said, um, you know, I'm, at this point they'd already worked with Nile on some instrumental tracks right. and said you know now I'm really getting into like the, the Nile Rogers thing that's what I want my left record to sound like and they kind of they looked at each other and went really <laughs> and that I mean this may be legend but it, you know lightning caught in a bottle um, yeah, okay. but yeah I think they were they were laid down pretty close together okay but Julia Casablancas did record another song which didn't make the cut evidently <laughs> so now he has the dubious because with the 10th anniversary hoo-ha mm-hmm. they dropped a new edition with a you know, with some outtakes and bonus tracks and all the rest of it. Okay. And not much of it is a substance. It's, you know, there's some Boko de Tess, a song that was on the Japanese-only album. I think the only yeah. real song that was left over was a second song with Julian Casablancas, which didn't make the cut. But now he has the dubious honour of technically playing on the last of a Daft Punk song because they obviously imploded yeah. sometime later. Or rather, retired. Oh, retired, um, yeah. So, so far, I've gone, love the opening track, um, I've, I've fast forwarded to within. I've enjoyed Instance Crush. I've really enjoyed Lose Yourself to Dance and then Touch. So, um, well, by a, a country mile, my favorite track on the album. 
Um, all hail touch. Um, probably because I am an old prog rock fan and that, you know, and, and I've, you know, I've got some prog albums that take four sides to cover the moods and musical styles that this song does. Um, but I love a song that takes on a challenge and this song takes on a challenge. You know, it, it, it starts with dark synth. It moves to West End musical. Then we get some seventies funk. Then we get a bit of you know, feels like Barry Manilow Club Tropicana. I wasn't expecting that. Uh, and then actually, finally, for me, the first time on the album, a, a, an evocative use of vocoder, a reason to use the vocoder. I love the bit where the vocoder is mixed with the straight harmonies. It's, it's like gospel with a, with a twist, which is genuinely exciting and different. Is that before or after the children's choir? Uh, I, can't, it, I think it's after the uh, after the after the honky tonk piano and the mariachi band, but before the children's choir. Probably, right? uh, yes, I think that. Yeah, um, and then it, you know, then it brings builds to a big orchestral, you know, climax and 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 an endpoint. So I, it's the song in the last, you know, two weeks since you've introduced this to me, and I've, you know, that I that I've got, I've gone back to and listened to most again. Um, Paul Williams, I'd never really heard of, but you know, that how did he end up on, on, on a Daft Park album? He wrote Rainy Days and Mondays for the Carpenters, for goodness sake. Um, uh, but I'm very and, glad he did. And all, and all the Muppet, and all, and all the Muppet soundtracks, apparently. Really? Which is, I know. C- completely, um. <laughs> This is yeah. a long way from the Muppets, but in a, and that's not to say that the Muppets aren't, you know, steeped in glorious musical history themselves. But but this is a long way. Although I can imagine, I mean, you know, imagine imagine Kermit knocking this one out. That'd be great. Anyway, sorry, go on. So so the official story, which I think the band may or may not have endorsed, because you know they're obviously ridiculously media shy. Mm. So the helmets, mm. um, history of the helmets. I mean, I've always thought the helmets were a little bit silly. Uh, a little bit of a gimmick. Uh, look, they remind me more of Kiss than some high art statement, which some people have liked them too. <laughs> However, I mean, on a very simple level, I think, you know, you had probably two shy kids who were DJing ever bigger audiences and yeah. didn't really want the fame, didn't really like it. So they started wearing these hats, mm. these, these helmets. And of course, throughout their career, they lent into it more and more heavily so their music started to really explore this theme of technology and roboticness uh, to, to a level that kind of became a bit of a caricature you might argue but the reason I bring all this up is because the helmets are supposedly in, inspired by the ones that Paul Williams' character wore in the film Phantom of the Paradise where I think I haven't seen the movie but some clips of him like playing a crazy organ with like a basically a robot helmet right. so he may or may not is the director inspiration right for their their whole aesthetic i mean really as i said it may have been a cheap way to get out of stuff but it became their guiding principle wow so this song is the most ambitious and incongruous moment on a very ambitious album but you know and it's as well as all the elements you've you've mentioned well i think one of my favorite bits is the shaft guitar yeah again sounds like a complete nod um, apparently there were up to 250 different musical elements on this. It must have taken a year to record this song alone, I suspect, <laughs> given that it took them two weeks to get the vocoder sound for each song. Wow. Um, wow. You wonder how much... All what, that, I, all that invention and ambition. Sure. Did you notice how the main uh, verse chord progression is basically the same as Get Lucky upper tone? I did not. No, no, I did not. Notice. See, touch. So, if we're looking for more evidence that these are charlatans who didn't <laughs> really, who had all the all the money and ta- all the money in the world to buy the best studios and the best musicians to realize all their ambitions, and they didn't really have well, touches living proof know. that you can 
you know, sometimes when you polish a turd, you can polish, you can it polish the, any turd. You can polish it something that it doesn't look like a turd, or so uh, because because uh, I genuinely enjoy it uh, every time. Be interesting to know what the percentage of time as a as a as a whole touch took on the album. Uh, I, there's a famous, I mean, they'll never tell you, will they? No, there's a famous anecdote. That it's something like you know, um, U2's Joshua Tree, you know, big album for U2. Mm. Uh, Where the streets have no name, the opening number. Uh, apparently, it was something like seventy percent of all the recording time was on that one song because it is the opening crescendo number, and everything else was like, yeah, whatever, that's fine. But they just went over and over and over because it's a very layered edge guitar solo thing that just keeps building and building and building, and it, it took them weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and months and months and months to work out and then they knocked out the rest of the album pretty quickly so we talked about get lucky yep. then we go into beyond which i think might be maybe my least favorite song on the album well that's where you got that's where because structurally you've gone give life to that's music okay is it a collaboration or not you've got a couple that aren't and then you've it got is. these middle bit of the album where it's collaboration 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 uh and then yeah you go to beyond uh, and motherboard, these two really, as I've said, just for me, not very interesting instrumentals that I would cheerfully, uh, you know, they they obviously went, oh, we we think enough of our songwriting to think we want to put these out. But interesting that there's out that there's not many outtakes uh, for the outtakes because it feels like they put the outtakes on the album to start with because these sound like outtakes of, mm-hmm. or B-sides that you wouldn't really need on the album. I completely agree and disagree at the same time. I, I do feel like Beyond, which actually also does feature Paul Williams on it as a, in a songwriting role, is it's more of the same but not as good. It's got a Nile star record, but it's not Nile. It's got a familiar chord progression. Mm-hmm. It's got this nice fat groove, but it's not really adding anything new to the party. But then Motherboard comes on, and I... This I'm totally sold on. Uh, I, okay. I don't know what's going on. You know, you've got you've got this kind of marching tribal drum beat and this thick acoustic and this incessant bass. It's just really, really atmospheric. But the moment that grabs me, the reason I really love it, is when the woodwind comes in and it's playing this repeating figure that, to me, is straight out of minimalism. It's it's, okay. it's, it's Philip Glass, and I find that really kind of compelling. And it's a really nice palate cleanser, and it's a really nice come down after what we've experienced with touch and yeah i i think motherboard's one of my favorite tracks on the album but yeah okay. beyond is I, 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 my least by a country i'll, I'll re-listen to motherboard because i like a bit of minimalism and it's it, but what i know about mm. it is it kind of if it catches you and gets you then it it goes into your mind and your soul and you can't yeah. let go if it doesn't then it leaves you cold because there's not much else to hang on to so i'll, I'll have another go at that we then move on to fragments of time Maybe that's just saying that the previous two tracks have just been little fragments of time or something. Um, uh, I quite liked Fragments of Time. I didn't know who Todd Edwards was. Still don't really know who Todd Edwards was. Um, we've talked a bit about this album kind of being a homage back to things in the past. Uh, <laughs> and, and mainly in the context of a, a kind of a homage back to kind of, you know, 70s, 80s funk disco. This one, it sounds like Billy Joel's been for lunch with Steely Dan and they've decided to make a song uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that's fine because you know for me I both like Steely Dan and Billy Joel and especially um I don't know if you've ever heard the Steely Dan album Pretzel Logic this could have come straight from that it's got the same sound very crisp production a little bit of kind of tingy jazzy elements into it even the kind of lyrical content is quite it's not very emotional it's just sort of talking about something from a slightly removed perspective Oh, that's just fragments of time. Da, da, da. Feels the same. This got the same kind of lyrical sense 
sensibility as, as, as Steely Dan as well. So uh, yeah, I was like, oh, well, they've done a they've done a Steely Dan homage. Fantastic, love it. That's so funny. I think I felt like it was an ad, a seventies advert for toothpaste. <laughs> Well, I suppose crystal, <laughs> and it sounds crystal clear, you know. And I, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's yacht rock to me. I, I, yes, this, this song yes, really. You see, this is there's, what, there's, no, even, there's even pedal steel on it. That I is mean, proof that it has a Steely Dan homage. Because if you like Steely Dan, you like Steely Dan, even despite that. If you don't like Steely Dan, then you say it's yacht rock, and it sounds like toothpaste. So they've clearly got it absolutely right. So that up, tick VG, well done. So the part that's most baffling though is that the Todd Edwards is yeah. uh, he's actually a long-term collaborator and a big inspiration for them he's like this new jersey i guess tech house i don't really i'm not a fan of his work to be honest but he's he's got a reputation for micro sampling he's a very kind of technical astute sampler apparently and he collaborated with them on this track face to face from homework i believe but to bring him to this project as basically kind of yeah as as someone that's singing a 70s toothpaste commercial is is deeply (laughs) baffling to me Uh, i guess it's a bit like bringing maroda in and and making him talk and bringing paul williams in who, yeah. I mean, it is an orchestra, it is a, is a songwriter for hire, but I don't think he ever wanted to be, you know, like a, yeah. a cabaret musician or whatever he's doing here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so it's, so it's, it's perhaps he did. I mean, yeah. I, yeah, well, but maybe, maybe they just think they met and went, you know what? Let's do what is not expected of us at all. Golly, on the plane over, I was listening to this classic Steely Dan album. Let's do some of that. Okay. <laughs> and they went, oh, we can well, production chops. We can make it sound like that. Fantastic. Easy. There is, there are times I'm listening to this record and I wonder if it's just one big joke. Like Daft Punk is just <laughs> so big doing what they did with samples and they just knew that they'd get this blank trick from the record company and they didn't, you know, didn't know what they were doing and they just, mm. you know, maybe it was a little bit of a knowing nod, nod, wink indulgence and we can hide behind our robot masks and, and, yeah. and laugh all the way to the bank. But you know what? I'm enjoying the results and they, I hope, I hope I'm a little bit in on the joke too. If, if, if yeah. indeed it is one. And I actually like it more thinking in that way that they were having a bit of fun with it because yeah, everything that's said about them is these mysterious people that you're not meant to know what they look like and they're very earnest and mm. so particular and so methodical. And- oh, that's really interesting because, because I, as, as someone that's a newcomer to them and I haven't heard the three albums before it, my overall impression of this album was that there's quite a lot of fun. It was fun. It's fun. So and, maybe the and, whole robot thing, we don't need to buy into it quite as deeply no, and philosophically and, and as I, people... And, and I didn't, you know, sometimes you read, you know, is, is the, we, we've talked a bit about the kind of musical concept of going up a half step every every three songs. Maybe they thought, well, that would be a giggle or people, will, let's leave that clue there. But actually, we're just throwing out stuff we made and we quite like it and there's no big concept behind it and people will do PhD theses on the track listing and we, have, you know, we pull them out of a hat. <laughs> Speaking of pulling it out of a hat, I yes. feel like if this was a deck of cards... The next track, doing it right, is the Joker. This one, more on an, again, on an album where nothing makes sense and nothing fits together, despite that, you know, if there's one thing we have, it's this loose kind of 70s disco funk aesthetic going on. Yeah. Doing it right is, it's the most modern sounding. It's the only song that sounds like it was made in 2013, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it also, to my ears, is the most natural collaboration in the truest sense of the word, rather than just being someone flown in to do the lyrics and vocals or whatever. It feels like something that was concocted together. I'm not sure that's actually the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that's just because of the way the two voices play together. And I think we talked about this in Lose Yourself to Dance. We love, I love the contrast between Pharrell's really kind of, you know, uh, soulful, 
technical vocals and that contrapuntal vocoder, you know, playing against each other, adding that modern, that retro futurism twist to a basically what would have been a otherwise a straight 70s homage. Sure. This I love because, yeah, you've got the two vocals playing against each other in a really interesting way. And yeah, I've got a lot of type of panda bear. I don't know. Do you, are you, He's obviously the drummer and one of the key creative uh, members of uh, Animal Collective, a band I've struggled to get on with at all points. But anyway, what did you think of the song? Yeah, yeah, no, uh, I'd, I'd never heard of Panda Bear, but it's on my you know good track list because it's another collaboration uh, where there was more interesting stuff going on than the non-collaboration stuff. So uh, I, it, it felt to me like it, it had its, its rightful place on the album. Yeah. It wasn't an outtake. Yeah. And then we come on to Contact. Hard to listen to when you're my age, probably. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm not the only person. So, have you heard of Jean-Michel Jarre? Yes. In fact, I've met him. <laughs> I, 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 I spent well, a you. nice half an hour long interview with him in his hotel suite when he's passing through town. Brilliant. Okay. So, Sadly, I didn't really know his music, so right. I you know, was relying on Wikipedia at that point. Okay. So, maybe this is just my own personal uh, kind of feeling of musical history but Jean-Michel Jarre, ha- Jarre had his moment in the sun I mean, he's you know he's a prominent musician but he became quite big in the UK around about an album called Rendezvous and the story behind Rendezvous was he'd written some music to go along with um, space shuttle launches and specifically one of the space shuttle astronauts played the saxophone uh, and him and Jean-Michel Jarre had um, written a piece of music together, which the saxonophist astronaut, there's a phrase, was going to play next time he was in the space shuttle. But it turned out to be the astronaut and the space shuttle that blew up uh, famously at that time. Yeah. So this album, I think, I don't know why, whether that's because this album became so big, Rendezvous, but it's an album that a lot of people had, or I did. They probably would have previously never had a Jean-Michel Jarre album because it's, you know, it's basically French early electronic uh, grand, you know, instrumental music stuff. But Rendezvous just had... It would be really interesting to know if Daft Punk have ever quoted him as an influence. Well, Um, because the the reason I'm going on about him is because, you know, so there's this album called Rendezvous, which has a lot of sort of spacey type themes to it and is an instrumental along the same veins as this. And of course, here we are now, you know, they're doing contact, which, and they've, you know, specifically taken the recordings of, um, you know, the last time man flew to the moon and the recordings from Apollo 17, uh, taken that, whatever the astronaut was saying and, and, and done a music track around it. And it just felt that, Musically and conceptually, very Jean-Michel Jarre-like for me, okay. uh, you know, making that making that link. And as a result, I kind of, again, I, because I didn't, I haven't found any of their instrumentals that interesting, this one included. Although I got this one, had bells and whistles and things and was more exciting and things. I still, I still listened to it and went, yeah, I don't really think you're doing anything particularly engaging or clever or, or even emotional there. Oh, well, fun fact, first of all, this is the only moment on the record that actually uses a sample. Okay. Uh, track called We Ride Tonight by the Australian rock band The Sherbs, as well as, as well as of course, the Apollo 17 sample. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I gotta say, this is something that, I mean, it's completely indulgent freak out, but I kind of feel yeah. like if you followed the record this far, and if Giorgio Beroda hasn't eroded your patience, uh-huh. and if touch hasn't made you giggle your way to the bathroom, <laughs> and you're still in for the ride. Yeah. You kind of deserve this. I mean, it, 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 this is very much their laboratory. Uh, rocket, rocket takeoff, old school epic. It's just, it's a, and 
I think also knowing that it was over for them, now, we didn't know this then, but this is technically right. the last note of their last album. Right. right. And, um, did, and did they know that so at the time? I don't know. And I, I mean, there's a whole other argument. I was listening to another podcast about this, this album, so I'm not going to pass this off as my own, but I do think there's an, you could argue that there's no place for a dark punk in 2023. I mean, Mm-hmm. You know, it, with, with everything that's happened and everything else that's going on in our lives, this kind of quaint, almost nostalgic throwback to the idea of, of robots, it, it just, it could, it was not really sustainable. Mm-hmm. So I like to think that, yeah, perhaps they've knowingly and smartly retired the moniker Daft Punk, but I don't think mm-hmm. that means that the two of them won't make music together again. They might just have to leave lose the silly helmets and face the world. And maybe they never want to do that. Yeah. So I was surprised, actually, having just had a quick look. Because of this, they just feel like producers, not songwriters. I assumed that they had a producing back catalogue, both you know, both before, during and after Dive Punk, that they would have... They I would think have... it's a, a remixing one, right? Well, I couldn't... But I couldn't find much evidence of it. Uh, and I wondered if you did. You know, that they're, they're not... Yes, they've done bits and and... and, and you know, but they're not, uh, you know, like an in-demand producer will be, you know, producing yeah. singles and albums to the nth degree, or, you know, you know, there'll be six or seven credits a year sort of thing, but they certainly haven't got that. It's almost like they've just sort of gone, well, we've done that and we're just sort of doing our bits and that's it. That's what we did. We're not, we're, you know, we, we, we dabble now. Yeah. So bottom line, is this an album you're glad you now know? I am. Um, I will play this album again. Um, I will play many tracks from this album, but it will always be the tracks that um, Daft Punk didn't write. It'll be the tracks that they produced and wrote in collaboration with people. And the ones that they did on their own, uh, I'm afraid, uh, will be confined to the the Spotify dustbin of, of history for me. But that first track... And the middle set of collaborations from Instant Crush uh, through to Get Lucky, yeah, that's a. That I'm I'm really pleased to know that, uh, and uh, I'll be you know will be the soundtrack of mowing the lawn, jogging, making breakfast uh, for, for for some time to come. So thank you very much. So the million dollar question, hmm. befitting of a million dollar record, will any of these songs make your hipster dad barbecue players <laughs> well touch uh, touch won't because it's 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 you know barbecue playlist death isn't it um but i imagine that lose yourself to dance will that's the one i'd pick get lucky's too obvious but get lucky's lose too yourself obvious to dance. is great and possibly that'll get the yummy mummies <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> and possibly instant crush. sorry you can take that out <laughs> <laughs> or not or not or not as the case Maybe. may be yes <laughs> Uh, Listeners, be reminded that this man is 13 years older than me. I'm allowed to. <laughs> um, so there. So, Rob, um, you talked about, you know, this was a, a big album for you at the time. And part of the reason for doing this is you wanted to kind of see how it sat with you 10 years later. So are you glad to have gone back to it 10 years later? I really am. I think at the time I wasn't ready for it. I didn't understand it. I was tasked with fighting a review too fast. And then I, and then I lived with it. And I especially heard those Pharrell songs out in the clubs. Mm. And as we discussed earlier, I always just had this deep conviction that the sequencing was all wrong. That that having the the first four tracks, three robo vocals and one where you've got an old man talking about sleeping in his car in somewhere in Germany. You know, I, 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 
it was a record that I, I think I felt how you do now, perhaps. It was one of peaks and troughs. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think I closed my review by saying it was like a blazing car crash that was just too captivating to take our eyes off, but that it was ultimately a bit of a mismatch. And mm-hmm. uh, I gave it four stars in my review because I didn't want to be the guy that gave Daft Punk three stars. I didn't have the security in my own mm-hmm. or convictions or perhaps done enough research to, to do that. But secretly, I wanted to give it three stars. I mean, that's what my what, what I really felt. But now, okay. uh, having kind of thrown myself at it with a vengeance for the last couple of weeks, I'd gladly give it 4.5, pushing it towards 5. I think this is a classic. It did define a generation, a moment. It, it, it's not many records that I feel have affected the public zeitgeist in my living memory as much as this one. And everything it did for wiping away that sea of EDM landfill and actually bringing groove and or organic instrumentation back into the equation and back into the conversation was a world of good. So yeah, yeah, I'm actually super happy I picked this and I was honestly mainly expecting you to hate it. So I'm really, <laughs> really glad you don't. Fantastic. On that note, so, on that note what are you going to be subjecting me to? Ah, uh, so talk about seventies throwbacks. Uh, Super Tramp, Crime of the Century, a record I know nothing about. Well, I very much look forward to exploring that with you next time. Catch you later. <laughs>